Having a needle stick injury in the middle of the night while on call is one of probably the scariest experiences to have as a medical professional. And I myself remember having such an experience as an intern. And when I think of the memory of it now, I still shudder. I've also seen this from the other end when working in casualty and having to help fellow colleagues who had just had a needle stick injury. It's really not a fun or pleasant experience at all. So today we're going to focus our episode on HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. Welcome to another episode of Microbe Mail. I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai, and today my guest is Dr. Vanya Bangali. Avanya is a medical virologist and she's working at the Witz Reproductive Health and HIV Institute. Welcome, Avanya. Thanks, Vindana. It's nice to chat to you again. I'm excited that we finally have taken a dive into virology content. I know a number of listeners have requested virology topics, so I'm super excited to welcome my co-host and one of Microbe Mail's newest team members, Dr. Ruan Murray. I'm going to give Ruan a chance to introduce himself, but he, along with Dr. Vinita Alex, have been helping create content for the show and seeking out some amazing guests. Hi, Ruan. Hi, Vin. I'm Ruan. I wrote uh, virology finals in 2021, and then I decided wasn't enough and joined as a <laughs> medical microbiology registrar at Grote Skier Hospital at the end of 2021. And I'm excited to be part of the team. So you're going to be a super microbiologist with all of that extra virology background that you get to have. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just uh, going after all the, the interesting facts, honestly, going where it's interesting. So a couple of quick updates before we head into the episode content. Remember to sign up for updates on the Microbe Mail website. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And remember to share Microbe Mail with anyone who you think might enjoy this podcast. So are you guys ready to head into some questions? Yes, sure. Okay, awesome. So I suppose the first place to start off would be to say, what is HIV post-exposure prophylaxis and who should be receiving it? So um, thanks for the question, Vin. So post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP as we call it, is a medical intervention that started after exposure to a pathogen in order to prevent the infection from occurring. And in this case, it's HIV. So PEP involves a short course of medication that's taken very soon after possible exposure to HIV to prevent the virus from taking hold in your body. It's important to note that PEP should only be used in emergency situations, so it's not meant for regular use by people who may be exposed to HIV frequently, so people who are at high risk such as sex workers or men who have sex with men. And PEP may also be prescribed if you are HIV negative or don't know your HIV status and think you may have been exposed to HIV in the last 72 hours via various mechanisms. So this may be during sex. For example, you had a condom break with a partner and you didn't know their HIV status or your partner is actually not virally suppressed. Or it can happen through occupational exposure by needle stick injuries or splash injuries or through sexual assault. Okay. I think probably the, the most important question and the question that you'll usually get from whoever you're providing PEP to is how effective is it and how do we know this? Yeah, Rowan, so this is actually quite a common question that we get um, when we consulted um, in the case of needle stick injuries. So PEP is effective in preventing HIV infection when it's taken correctly, but the caveat is that it's not 100% effective. The sooner you start PEP after possible HIV exposure, the better. 
And the most accurate way to test the efficacy of PEP would be to conduct randomized controlled trials that would compare people taking PEP with people not taking PEP. However, this has never been considered to be ethically acceptable as it would involve denying people who have been exposed to HIV a treatment that was actually expected to be effective. Therefore, almost all the evidence on the effectiveness of PEP in humans actually comes from observational studies, and these studies provide a less robust form of evidence. However, what we have gleaned so far from these studies is that PEP is highly effective. Where there have been HIV infections in people receiving PEP, these are primarily related to people that actually don't start PEP promptly, and we'll discuss this a little bit later, mm -hmm. um, where people have missed doses of PEP or they haven't finished the entire 28-day course. If they were infected with a viral strain that is resistant to the drugs used in the PEP regimen, mm -hmm. or they were having unprotected sex with further HIV exposures, while taking PEP. Okay, so that's quite a nice run through. So are there any investigations you think that should be performed on the source and the exposed individual prior to initiation of PEP? And, you know, there are situations, especially in low and middle income settings where you might not always have these tests available. And I think the question would be then, what should you do if these tests aren't immediately available? Absolutely. So we're often faced with, with these challenges. However, wherever possible, investigations for concomitant infections should be requested for both the source and the exposed individual. So if the source individual is unknown, so there's no background history available, or they refuse to test, the exposed person must be treated as if the source is HIV positive. So every person exposed to potentially infectious fluids should be assessed by a trained healthcare worker. And essential components of this assessment include the mechanism of exposure, so how did it occur, and examination of the wound. And then initial first aid treatment should be administered, and then eligibility for PEP should be determined. And there's various factors we look at when we determine eligibility for PEP. One is the mechanism of exposure, and that's really important because the risk of transmission for, from exposure to infectious fluids is associated with several factors. And this includes the presence of blood in the fluid, the amount of blood, the type of injury, so deep injuries are more risky than, than shallow injuries, the duration of exposure, the viral load and the clinical state of the infected source person, and the immune status of the injured person. So other factors that influence the risk of transmission in an asexual case include the type of sexual penetration with a high risk being associated with receptive anal and vaginal intercourse, um, any existing medical conditions, the client's immunity status, pregnancy status, and the time since exposure. So, Ideally, in terms of your baseline laboratory investigations, you'd want to request a few tests. Mm. So obviously, we'd start with the HIV test. On the source patient at the bedside, you can do a rapid test and then send a blood specimen for a fourth-generation ELISA. Okay. On the exposed adult, you would do a rapid test as well immediately and then send off for your fourth generation ELISA that's done in the laboratory. 
You'd also want to look at hepatitis B. In the source patient, you'd want to look at antigens, so your hepatitis B surface antigen. In your exposed adult, you'd want to know if they have any antibodies, so you test for surface antibody. Hepatitis C is also a consideration, especially in a high-risk source, such as somebody who injects drugs. So you can do an HCV antibody in the source and possibly an HCV antibody in the exposed adult. Depending on the HIV regimen that you're choosing and the history of the patient, you may want to do a pregnancy test. You may also want to follow up with syphilis testing in the source patient and in the exposed. And then in terms of your uh, chemistry tests, you'd want to take a baseline creatinine if tenofovil will be part of the regimen or a full blood count if you're considering AZT as part of your regimen. So if tests are not immediately available, you need to continue with PEP on the assumption that the source is positive. So these we are assuming, Avanya, that all of the tests that you've mentioned are available in most settings in South Africa, right? So if you're in a rural setting, you should have a center that you can refer all of these tests out to. Absolutely, yes. Including hepatitis C, which is now more commonly available as a diagnostic test. Yes, so generally, yeah, generally centers that offer hepatitis B do offer hepatitis C um, antibodies. And then for listeners outside of South Africa, the testing that you've recommended is is not necessarily restricted to the South African setting? This is kind of a global recommendation? No, it's not. It's it's a global recommendation, yes. Okay, okay, great. And if you are then in the situation that you have decided you need to administer PEP, how quickly should you administer it? Mm -hmm. And if you're in a situation where the patient presents outside this optimal window, as I'm sure we've all experienced in South Africa, what should you do? Should you still offer PEP or are there alternative approaches? So this is something key that we've spoken about earlier. And all occupational exposures should actually be treated as a medical emergency. And this is very important to note. So PEP should be commenced as soon as possible. So ideally within two hours of the exposure, but not later than 72 hours preferably after the initial evaluation that we discussed has been done. It's important to note that you do not delay initiating PEP while awaiting confirmatory test results on the source patient or the exposed individual. And I'll explain a little bit more why we have this kind of timing and why we want to initiate PEP as quickly as possible. So in terms of pathophysiology, After exposure to HIV, there's local replication of the virus that occurs in tissue macrophages or dendritic cells. However, if the infection cannot be contained at this stage, it is followed within 48 to 72 hours by replication of HIV in the regional lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. Baremia then follows within 72 to 120 hours, that's about three to five days after virus inoculation. So this sequence of events actually carries significant implications. Given the rapid appearance of productively infected cells following the introduction of the virus, PEP regimens with the most rapid onset of activity, multiple sites of antiviral action, and greatest potency are likely most effective. 
And the sooner the regimen is started after possible HIV exposure, the better. So because evidence indicates that PEP is not effective when initiated more than 72 hours post-exposure, clinicians should not initiate PEP after this time point. If PEP is prescribed after 72 hours and then discontinued after 28 days, the risk of viral rebound with the inadvertent interruption in ERT is significant as is the associated risk of developing resistance to ART as well. Okay, so you've been talking about starting those regimens. So it's important then for us to have a discussion about what the recommended regimen is for HIV PIP in South Africa, and specifically how it should be administered. And I believe there are some situations where sometimes you started on a starter pack that doesn't necessarily match the preferred regimen. And if you can give us some advice on what to do if this is the situation. Sure. So the current recommendations is a combination of the drugs tenofovir, limavudine, and dolutegravir, available as a fixed dose combination that's taken once a day for 28 days. So this regimen is actually the gold standard and should be readily available at all facilities. Alternatives should only be considered in very exceptional circumstances if that a TLD is not suitable or not tolerated for any reason. And any prescription of PEP should follow counseling and consent based on an understanding of the risks and benefits. So the exposed individual should always chat to somebody who can advise them regarding any side effects that they're going to experience and any concerns that they have around that particular drug regimen. The healthcare provider will always assess for underlying comorbidities and potential drug-drug interactions before prescribing. And a full 28-day supply of medication must always be given if possible. And this prevents any breaks and interruptions in treatment and when you did mention starter packs, and I know mm. um, that when we used to practice a few years ago, there would always be starter packs available, but this yeah. kind of practice should be discouraged. Okay. And as we said, starter packs are not recommended due to the risk of defaulting treatment. Oh, that's interesting. If, if there's a starter pack with some of the older regimens that are available, a patient can always switch to TLD as soon as possible. So I guess the rationale behind those starter packs was that so so you could get the drugs as quickly as possible. So we're not concerned that not having starter packs available is kind of increasing the time frame from exposure to getting the drug? Well, I think, you know, most centers actually have the full course of PEP available. If centers okay. do not, mm-hmm. they actually should have somebody available who can prescribe it immediately. And they should have a protocol of how the exposed person should actually access that medication. With dolutegravir being the gold standard integrase inhibitor, I know right before my exams, at least, the risk of or potential risk of neural t- tube defects was was a major concern and there was numerous publications around it that came out. So yeah. is there, with the currently available evidence, evidence on dolutegravir, is there any difference in the PEP regimen for pregnant women? 
Okay, so you would have seen the South African HIV Clinician Society and also the National Department of Health has updated their guidelines. So there was initially an uptick in the concern for Dalyotegava based on the Chipamo studies that were done mainly in Botswana and um, the risk of neural tube defects. But since then, we haven't seen a significant risk and the recommendations have changed. So none of the current agents recommended for PIP of HIV, HPV, or tetanus are contraindicated for pregnant, pregnant women, and that's important to note. So in terms of the new regulations and the new recommendations, Dolutegravir actually carries a low risk of neural tube defects if used in the first six weeks of pregnancy. And women should be counseled on the risks and benefits of Dolutegravir use and be enabled to make an informed choice based on this. Women who are breastfeeding are not contraindicated in terms of PEP for HIV, but the risks and benefits of continuing breastfeeding while HIV transmission risk is unknown should actually be discussed with the mom. All right, so if a, if a pregnant woman doesn't wish to use Dolutegravir, to what alternative regimen would you advise? Okay, so in terms of the guidelines currently, the alternative regimen is tenofovir with uh, lamivudine and a protease um, inhibitor. So either astaxanthin or lopinavir combined with ritonavir. And unfortunately, that needs to be taken twice a day. So it's a little bit more of medication that's need to, needed to be taken by the patient with a little bit more gastric side effects as well. So it's something to consider. Yeah, so some, uh, probably compliance is something to really, really watch out for. Definitely, yeah, because you're increasing the pull burden and, and they're not too great in terms of side effects as well. I mean, with atazanavir, there's always the jaundice issue and that can always be a problem in pregnancy because then you now have to distinguish it from cholestasis in pregnancy, which can be quite a, a severe condition. Yeah, the unconjugated hypobilirubinemia is certainly problematic. And patients often will say, doctor, I noticed my eyes are turning yellow. Oh, gosh. And um, it, it's, really, it's really not nice. So we know that this concept of taking these drugs for a full 28 weeks has been discussed ad nauseum. So we know that the, the drugs come with their challenges and just the regimen itself comes with these challenges. So can you maybe give us a run through of what these are? Okay. So uh, I'm actually going to chat about the considerations and, and caveats that come up commonly when PEP is introduced. So some of these can include the following situations. So for example, in a high-risk exposed individual where there's suspected seroconversion. So what to do in this case? So if acute HIV infection is suspected at any time, you would need to immediately consult with a clinician who's experienced in managing acute HIV infection and take it from there. If the source is a confirmed HIV negative, then the exposed individual's PEP regimen should ideally be discontinued. Use of a three-drug PEP regimen. So when the source is known to have HIV, it would be really nice if the past and current ART history is available the patient's viral load data, so at least the last two viral loads if possible, or if there are any um, resistance tests that are available. And these may actually inform the use of an alternative PEP regimen. And if you are not sure, it's important to then, again, consult with an experienced HIV care provider. 
That's important to know because I think usually people will just go to the patient and say, is the patient positive or negative and kind of stop there. But all of that is really important information. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's something that a lot of people don't consider, but it will actually inform the drugs that, that the exposed person is taking. So it's it's good to have. And then we spoke about Dolly Chegova earlier. And here it's important to note your drug-drug interactions and your adverse effects. So with Dolutegravir, they should be advised not to take uh, your divalent cations, which is aluminium, so your, your syrups that are uh, taken for gastric acid reflux, calcium supplements, magnesium supplements, or iron supplements with the Dolutegravir. Patients who are diabetic, so metformin dosing should be limited to one gram per day when an individual is taking Dolutegravir concurrently. And then it's also very important to note that exposed persons should be counseled about the low risk of GI side effects with tenofovir and lamivudine or intracytopine, such as nausea, abdominal bloating and vomiting. And some people can also experience a headache. Importantly, with dolutegravir as well, there's a low risk of neuropsychiatric side effects, such as insomnia, that they need to be aware of. So... Are there any other assessments or prophylaxis not related to HIV that need to be offered as part of the whole PEP package? So, for example, if a source patient is hepatitis B, surface antigen positive and HIV positive, is the HIV PEP regimen antiviral sufficient? Because we, we know tenofovir is active against hep B, but would that be sufficient to prevent hep B? That's actually quite a nice question. Depending on the exposure, there are various prophylaxis that may be considered. The first one is hepatitis B, as we've discussed, and I'll, I'll chat about it in a little while. If there's been a sexual exposure, the patient may require emergency contraception. There may be STI prophylaxis and tetanus prophylaxis required as well. So since I'm a virologist, we're going to discuss hepatitis B in a little bit of detail. So you're right, Ruan, tenofovir and lamivudine is active against hepatitis B. However, post-exposure prophylaxis is a little bit different. So in terms of hepatitis B, we know that most healthcare workers are actually vaccinated against hepatitis B virus. And when they start work, they should have proof of an antibody response. And these should be filed um, with HR or with the Occupational Health and Safety Officer. However, if there's no proof of immunity or the healthcare provider is a vaccine non-responder, then specific hepatitis B post-exposure prophylaxis should be started concomitantly within seven days of exposure. And this consists of hepatitis B immunoglobulin that is administered once off um, intramuscularly together with the hepatitis B vaccine that's given at three doses at monthly intervals. And then we will assess a month or two after the last dose whether the person has indeed responded by measuring the antibody levels um, in the exposed individual. So in short, no, please do not choose tenofovir and think that it will protect you against hepatitis B if you are exposed. So with the broader access of the hep C antivirals, if in your during your initial investigations, the, the, the source patient is hep C viremic, would you consider using the one of the new antivirals if you had access as post-exposure prophylaxis? So it's actually not in the recommendations currently. 
And it's something that I personally would not consider using at this stage. I agree. I, I think in the US guidelines, they do advise treating acute hepatitis C, but they don't recommend using the hep C antivirals as prophylaxis. It's not for prophylaxis. And then, Avanya, we spoke earlier about investigations, etc. But now later down the course of the PEP, should there be any follow-up investigations done? And specifically now, at some point, you've got to do HIV testing to see if the person has seroconverted or not. So what tests are recommended and which ones should and shouldn't be used? So in terms of HIV, if you want to look at seroconversion in your exposed adults, you'd want to repeat your HIV test using the same tests. Ideally, your fourth generation ELISA, because it decreases that window period at six weeks and then again at four months. Your hepatitis B, as I said, if they did require post-exposure prophylaxis, you do want to check if they've mounted an immune response one to two months after the last vaccine dose. Hepatitis C, if the source patient was actually um, HCV positive, you'd want to do an HCV PCR on your exposed patient after six weeks. And then other tests that you would consider, as we've discussed before, syphilis, your creatinine, um, if you're using tenofovir, FPC, if AZT is being used, and then a follow-up pregnancy test, depending on the last menstrual period, if there was a sexual assault. So at no point would you consider using a PCR? So actually not. A lot of people seem to uh, misunderstand the uses of HIV tests for diagnosis and for monitoring. So remember that your HIV PCR, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, is not a diagnostic test. It is used for monitoring and for early infant diagnosis. Our fourth generation ELISA will actually tell you if you are infected with the HIV virus by measuring P24 antigen, which is a protein in the HIV virus, and antibodies consisting of your IgG and IgM against HIV. If I can just follow on to that, I mean, we, we often have the issue in early infant diagnosis of our PCRs not being adequately sensitive because of the PMTCT program and prophylaxis given that aspect, because ultimately the HIV PCR is detect is is going to detect nucleic acids and what we are trying to do with our prophylaxis mm. and with infant prophylaxis and with PEP is to suppress viral replication and the production of more nucleic acids so the very the very intervention mm. that we're giving with PEP is going to reduce the sensitivity of the PCR so while it might seem as the gold standard and to a lot of clinicians and I have frequently fielded the calls where clinicians request a PCR specifically because they don't trust the ELISA result. No, the ELISA, the, the ELISA is the gold standard in adults because regardless of how well your viral load is suppressed by your PEP or by your chronic ART, your antibodies will still be detectable. Absolutely, Ron, I agree. I mean, although we've seen cases where patients have been on ARVs for a long time and they may not have as much antigenic exposure and lower titers of antibodies. We still want to measure those antibodies to establish whether the patient is actually infected with HIV or not, as the patient's viral load may actually be undertaken. And then when the HIV antibodies dip so low that it's a low positive and so on, well, that's a virology journal club. <laughs> 
maybe another episode of microbe mail at a later absolutely stage. <laughs> yeah i think i think um, difficult hiv diagnoses is, a, is an interesting topic on its own Ruan, you can table that for, for later in the year i think uh, one of the the most difficult counseling sessions are convincing a patient that pep is not required so in which situations would pep not be required after an exposure that is a tricky one to navigate yeah that is a tricky one you know we see both spectrums um, when people are exposed the people that really want to get onto pep as quickly as possible and those people that really hesitate and, and require further counseling etc so if we look at the in- indications well, well where pep is actually not indicated is when there's been exposure, so the material the person was exposed to is actually not infectious. So a lot of people don't understand which bodily fluids are infectious for HIV and which are not. So things like vomitus, urine, feces, or saliva, um, or even tears for that matter, although it's, it's not commonly encountered, is actually not infectious for HIV unless it is visibly bloodstained. So PEP may also be not indicated when the occupational exposure actually occurred on intact skin. And this is similar to rabies post-exposure prophylaxis, you know, when when there's no actually puncture of the skin uh, by the animal, or in this case, there's no puncture of the skin to a needle, or there's been no splash um, with infectious fluid to your exposed mucous membranes. PEP may also be not indicated when the source patient, as we said, is HIV negative. However, caveat to this is if there are clinical features that suggest zero conversion illness or a history of a recent high-risk exposure. For example, this is an MSM who has engaged in unprotected sexual intercourse in, in the week or two prior to the incident, or this is a person who injects drugs uh, regularly, and then you may want to reevaluate that. And if you are in doubt, rather initiate PEP and then consult with a virologist or an ID specialist as necessary. I think that clears it up and it's pretty um, straightforward to understand. But you're right. I mean, there is often a lot of anxiety around it and perhaps the clinician themselves is not sure. So better to start and then um, you can reevaluate. One of the things we always try and address on microbe male episodes is gender and age so that we try and cover everybody possible. Are there any gender or age-specific differences when it comes to HIV PEP? Okay, so we spoke a little bit about pregnant women, and then it applies to women in general. But actually, there are no gender differences. It's only age. And we know this about HIV, specifically when it comes to testing and, and PEP regimens. So this is something you may or may not be familiar with depending on where you practice and and what you have been exposed to. But generally, HIV testing methods for children differ from those adults, as we've discussed earlier. So if we look at different age bands, if a child is less than 18 months of age and not known HIV positive, you would want to do the HIV DNA PCR test and then initiate HIV PEP if the exposure occurred within the previous 72 hours. You then follow up on the test within 48 hours. And if the PCR result is negative, you'd continue HIV PEP for four weeks. 
If the result, however, is positive, you would then switch from PEP to a full ART regimen and confirm the diagnosis with a second PCR test on a different sample. Okay. And this is in the South African ART guidelines as well. Um, however, if the child is a little bit older, so if the child is between 18 to 24 months of age, you can do an antibody-based HIV rapid test. And if the HIV rapid test is negative, you can initiate a PEP if the exposure occurred within the previous 72 hours and then continue PEP for 28 days. If the rapid test is positive, you would then switch from PEP to a full ART regimen and confirm the diagnosis with a molecular test like the HIV PCR or an HIV viral load. And if the child is then more than 24 months of age, you need to follow the normal adult testing algorithm. However, it's important to note that in a child between 18 months to two years, there may still be uh, maternal antibodies that are circulating. And therefore, you may get a false positive HIV rapid test. In that case, it is important to know the maternal history and the maternal blood test results. And then you would consult with the virologist and then take the case further. And then in terms of your PEP regimens, this is actually governed by weight. So if the child is less than 20 kilograms, the current regimen is AZT with a lamivudine and a protease inhibitor consisting of lopinavir together with ritonavir. And if they weigh 20 kilograms or more, it's AZT plus lamivudine plus um, dolutegravir. Okay. Okay, great. So are there any situations in which you would advise stopping PEP early? Could it possible side effects or a diagnostic test, which has come back negative? Are there any situations in which you would advise it? So as I said, if your exposed person is low risk and your source patient actually had no history of exposures and, they, and they're negative, then it's fine to stop your, your PEP. However, if we are looking at things like severe side effects, etc., you know, we have that initial counseling session to discuss the drugs and, and what you would experience. And I think it's important then, as you said, that the risks and benefits are actually discussed with the patient so that they understand what they are going to be experiencing once they start their PEP regimen. And it's important to tell them at the, on, uh, at the outset and continually during the monitoring visits that it's never okay to stop PEP. Because as I've explained, you know, it, it increases your chances of, of acquiring HIV infection. Mm. And it's important to note that actually PEP is generally not very well tolerated. You know, when we had the older regimens, it was very poorly tolerated. I, I remember my husband was assisting in theater once and um, the surgeon nicked him and he had to go on to PEP and he was actually sick for the whole month. It's not a nice medication to take. And actually adverse effects occur in about half of cases, which lead to patients actually defaulting PEP in about a third of cases. So it's critical to proactively manage possible side effects. However, the serious side effects that can develop from long-term use of ARVs are rarely a problem with, with a short course. And we were talking about sort of liver toxicity and stuff earlier. 
So you need to actually speak to your healthcare provider about side effects so that they are effectively monitored and managed appropriately so that adherence is promoted. So for example, if the patient is feeling nauseous that they are prescribed antiemetics, or if they have a headache that they are given pain medication, et cetera, so that they know what to expect. Sure, that's a 50% is high in terms of it side is quite, effects. It is quite sure. high, yeah. So, Avanya, that was a lot of information. It was incredibly valuable. And we're coming towards the end of this episode. And I certainly have learned so much and been reminded because my virology is kind of takes a little bit of a backseat, to be honest, because we don't do so much of it directly ourselves. Before we end the episode, we always have a spotlight feature. And today's spotlight feature is called the mini micro message. Now, I approached um, Simon Fraser from the Dr. Coffee podcast and asked if he had any kids in mind who could give us a nice message. And in fact, he's got a son named Noah who's recorded a very, very special message for both you, Avanya, and for you, Ruan. So take a listen to this one and let me know what you think. Hi, Microbial listeners. I'm Noah Fraser King. I'm nine years old and I'm from Johannesburg, South Africa. I love reading, and one of my favorite authors at the moment is Roald Dahl. I'm sure you're wondering, what does this have to do with microbes? Well, Roald Dahl was always fascinated by medicine. He wrote a collection of short stories for adults that included medical topics like pockets of bacteria and a bag of malaria. In 1962, he lost his daughter Olivia to measles. No vaccines were available for measles back then, but when the vaccines did come uh, become available, he went around encouraging all parents to vaccinate their kids. Lastly, did you know that he actually helped develop a medical device? Hydrocephalus is a complication of many brain diseases, like meningitis. Roald Dahl helped develop the Dahl way till shunt to treat this. Don't believe me? Go check it out. A very well-spoken young man. How clever was that message? I had no idea that Roald Dahl was involved in all of that. Yeah, I, I'm surprised as well. I, I read Roald Dahl throughout my childhood. I mean, I had a, a suitcase with with just just filled with Roald Dahl books that I took everywhere with me. Yeah, I, I honestly, I didn't know that that he was such an advocate for vaccines and to develop the medical device. Oh, that's very impressive. Yeah, interesting. What do you think, Avanya? Well, I think that was really interesting. I, I grew up reading Roald Dahl books and my son read them as well. And it's nice to know that he was actually promoting health-seeking behavior and promoting vaccines and different sort of medication-related interventions because I, I actually had no idea that, that he was involved to such an extent. So I think that's really interesting. And well done to little Noah, hey? He should have his own podcast. I would, I would definitely listen to it. He could easily take after his dad. <laughs> I'll let him know. <laughs> okay. Okay. So before we end the episode, do you have any very quick take-home messages, Avanya, or some tips and tricks? So actually, Ben, not really. I hope I've covered whatever 
has been bugging people or whatever they would like to know about HIV post-exposure prophylaxis because it's such a common situation that we find ourselves in and people often don't understand sort of the nooks and crannies around why we do certain tests, mm. um, what are the regimens we take, what to expect when you're on PEP, when to start, when to stop. And I just hope I've cleared up some of these common misconceptions and questions that we, that we often encounter. No, it really was amazing. I think uh, as a take-home message from me, the main thing would be that healthcare workers, you should not try and manage your own exposure. I think when, when you mm. have that needle stick or, or the splash the, in such a high-stress situation, you may not make the best decisions and that may compromise yourself as well as potentially the patients that, that you're taking care of. So if you do have an, have an exposure, follow your institutional policy in terms of going to casualty, having a casualty officer or whatever situation is appropriate to you um, in terms of managing that exposure so that, so that you get the, the correct treatment and the correct follow-up. Thank you. That's an incredibly important message. So thank you both for joining me on today's episode of Microbe Mail. It was really great co-hosting with you, Ruan, and it was excellent to have you as a guest, Ivania. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks uh, both to Ruan and Finn for, for having Thanks. me Thanks. It was on. awesome. Listeners, what do you think of Microbe Mail? Go ahead and leave us a thumbs up or a review wherever you might be listening. So until next time. That's it from me, Vin, your microbe messenger, and the entire microbe mail team. We will see you again soon with more Contagious Mail. Get